Christ is risen. risen Starting a new uh, topic, new book and study this this week. Um, We're looking at the first letter of St. Peter. Uh, You will probably want a Bible. I will have a text up on the screen, but I would encourage you to have a text of Scripture so that you can look up things and follow along maybe what's not up on the screen. Uh, Ideally... It's always, always ideal when studying the scriptures to use one single book. So if you're too late to go, if you didn't bring your Bible this morning. But I'd always encourage if you can, just because the, there's such a thing as space memory. And that when you look at a text, and that gives you the chance to mark it up, to underline, to, to make notes uh, in your Bible is a useful thing. But we are going to uh, look through this book. Uh, one thing that we're going to do, like we did when we went through Romans, uh, is we're going to read the whole book together out loud. I think it's useful just for us to put the words, so that by the end of this, this such, you'll, you will have read the whole letter of First Peter, if you're here every week. If you're not here every week, um, if you miss, you, there, I do have an audio recording, and you can access that. If you have trouble finding that, I can help you. It's in a podcast format so that you can, it can auto-download uh, to your device if you want. And if you want to listen again to what you didn't hear the first time, you can do that that way too. Uh, for this study, um, we're, this, this one we're going to take our time with. I'm not going to rush through it and try to like get through this in, I don't know how long it's going to take. I, I want us to, kind of like we did with Romans a little bit, where we want to take our time and just soak up the beauty of the words of the apostle. Uh, they really are a delight, this whole, this whole book. Um, for my preparation, just I'll be studying the text. One uh, book, a commentary that I want to work my way through during this time in preparation for this is, is by a guy named George Steckhart. Uh, he was a professor at the, the seminary in St. Louis uh, in, oh, let's see, I don't know when. This was published in 1912, and I'm trying to remember when he died. Um, Around this time. This was very late. uh, One of the last commentaries that he published in his life. Uh, He is known as, perhaps referred to often as the the, the best, the greatest Lutheran exegete in, uh, in the United States. And exegete, exegesis, is this deep study of the scriptures in the original language to draw out all the all the, the, the meaning and comfort that, that is in uh, in the text. Uh, and he's very good at that. Unfortunately, uh, this has not been translated into English that I know of. Um, I'm not 100% sure. I contacted our, our library at our seminary, uh, and they're going to send me a copy of something that's been translated on First Peter, but I'm not sure if it's this book or just a translation of his lectures. Of course, that might have been what, how they published this book. But, so I have to do it in German, which means I can do it, but it's a little bit slow, and I need uh, a dictionary close at hand. But it's, so far, been very valuable to, to go through. It's a very thorough uh, commentary on that. I was going to, we want to do some uh, introductory stuff, and you have on your sheet there some questions, um, introductory, but, (laughs) like I was going to go through some of these introductory topics and then get into the text, 
But I think it's best for us to get into the text as soon as possible because that's where we're going to find these, the answers to these opening questions. Um, I'm going to have to come back to some of these slides, but what I'm going to do, see if this works, is shift over, like so, to, this is my Bible software, I'm going to find my, and there we go. So what I'm going to have here is I'm going to have the ESV. So if you don't, depending on which translation you grabbed, the black ones are, are NIV. Um, we're going to read through in the, the ESV. I'll have the, ES, the NIV up here, too. I can put up here any translation, too, if we ever want to check what it was in King James or what it is in some other thing. I can, I, we can do that. I'm going to keep the Greek there. That's for my own reference in case I need to refer to and figure out what something is. But I'll keep the, the ESV will be our, our main text. What I'd like to do first is read just this opening section here. So that's one, just verses one and two, okay? So we will read verses one and two. Ready? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right. So the first, uh, this is typical letter form um, in, in this time, that instead of signing your name at the bottom, you put your name at the top. Um, the, the author's name is first. So who is the author of this letter? Of course, this is? Peter. Now, this is not uh, uniformly scholars, and scholars who don't necessarily take the word of God at face value. So understand that. When I say Bible scholars, they don't necessarily believe what the Bible says, but they're Bible scholars. That might sound weird to us, but it's, it's very true. They, they, they dig it, and some will, will say they don't believe that Peter wrote this. You know why they think that Peter didn't write this? And especially 2 Peter. Um, why do they think that Peter didn't write this letter? Because they're convinced, well, one. So what was Peter's occupation? He's a fisherman. And they say fishermen couldn't read. Or write, right? Um, <laughs> what's their evidence that fishermen couldn't read or write? Just that perhaps many of them didn't. Which is, is that probably true? Perhaps. Right? Were there many fishermen who didn't read or write? Probably. Were there a lot of other occupations of people who didn't read or write? Were there some people in occupations where most of them didn't read or write, where some of them could have read or written? Just the fact that many in that time frame did not doesn't mean that one of them couldn't. It's no proof of that. Right? Well, what would be what would be a good uh, evidence that a fisherman could? read or write. How about a book with his name on it? <laughs> so, if you, so if you discount the evidence that at least one fisherman could read and write, namely a book with his name attached to it, um, otherwise it's a forgery. Or people just put his, someone else wrote it, but they put his name on it, he didn't put his name on it. Um, <clears throat> we have no reason to, dis, to, to doubt 
that Peter, our Peter, so this is Peter, the apostle, one of the twelve, right? He calls himself Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That kind of narrows it down with Peter, right? We had one of the twelve. In fact, what, who gave him the name Peter? Remember that from our study of the, of the disciples? Because what's his original name? Or what's his, like, Simon, right? We call him Simon Peter. Simon, but then he's he's called who is called Peter or Cephas was I think the Aramaic name for it. Um, Jesus gives him that kind of a nickname. Uh, in one uh, which of the Gospels it refers to Peter, whom Jesus called Peter, Simon, whom Jesus called Peter, right? During the time when Jesus followed Jesus, he had ample time. Yeah, I mean. We, we really don't know anything else about like his upbringing or where, yeah, how something. The other thing, um, when, it, when it comes to Peter writing this book, uh, is it is possible, it's possible that Peter could not read or write. Um, at the end of the book, if you, this is why having a Bible is useful. If you want to turn to page, or chapter 5 in First Peter, should be only a couple pages. In 5 verse 12, so this is at the very end of the letter, uh, he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So I have written to you by Silvanus, which could possibly be like a kind of a scribe or a secretary. This was common. Um, all times, really, of someone writing, you know, a secretary. He's dictating it to someone else. That is also a possibility. That Peter dictates to someone who actually does the writing down. Um, and that, that doesn't take away from Peter's authorship of this. Uh, if you have this, a number of the prophets uh, write about having a scribe who writes down uh, what, they, what they speak. But Peter is the author, and Peter is the, the apostle. Um, we remember that he is the, kind of the, he was the first of the twelve. He's always listed, remember that, in all the listings of the disciples. He's listed first. Um, he, he's viewed as, as a leader of the disciples. He speaks up for them, um, oftentimes kind of as a spokesman. He, how, where, where do we know about Peter? We learned that from um, from the Gospels, uh, also the book of Acts. He shows up quite a bit in the book of Acts as well. As, uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul refers to Peter and his relation to Peter. Um, what else do we want to say about Peter? Uh, another thing, uh, so obviously the, the strongest evidence for Peter writing this is this first verse. That's, that's the start because it, it's got his name on it. Um, another one would be in the second letter, what we call Second Peter. Uh, it's in chapter something. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Peter says, in Second Peter, he says, in my, uh, in my first letter to you, or this is my second letter to you, or something that makes reference to this previous epistle. Okay? So you have that evidence. Um, but it also has uh, evidence early in the church. So this is where our church history is going to come in handy. Um, let's see if we can do this now. Do this, and then back here. 
Remember this? So uh, this letter of Peter is referred to or like quoted in part by people like Clement of Rome. So you see the time frame? He's living during the time uh, that, that Peter's writing and he, he quotes the letter uh, and so does Ignatius of Antioch. It's in another document early on. Um, Irenaeus mentions that letter by Peter by name as the author of this letter. So very Eusebius, I think he shows up somewhere in, uh, in this page, but um, later on. First uh, Peter is listed in the, the a list of books of the New Testament. So very early on, no one doubts that Peter wrote, and, and the, the apostle. During the time when Peter would still be alive, or at least people who knew Peter, um, they were claiming that this book was written by Peter. So we have no reason to doubt, doubt that. Uh, what else? Uh, what does it mean that he is an apostle? So, uh, what, what, remember what the word apostle means? It's a very specific meaning. An apostle is one who is sent. A sent one. So, an apostle, then when he says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ means, who was he sent by? By Christ. Um, where, when did he, was he sent by Christ? Well, we could look in the Gospels and see when Jesus sent out his disciples. Specifically after his resurrection, uh, Jesus says in John 20, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He's talking to the twelve. So also then apostles is usually kind of shorthand for one of the twelve. Right? That Judas goes away. Um, they, they elect another, but then the apostle Paul is also referred to as an apostle sent by Jesus. Jesus appears to him. Uh, so, and his apostleship gives him authority to speak and to teach. Authority from Jesus himself to teach. Uh, and what authority, we might ask, what does authority, does he have to write this kind of authoritatively to these people in these places? This is, uh, back up. Um, where he's going to be writing, we're we'll get to there. These people to whom he's been writing, he didn't start these churches. He probably didn't ever even meet them. But as an apostle of Jesus, he has something to say to them. Uh, we'll talk about. Let's. Why don't we do that? Unless there's anything else on Peter and the author. Let's move on then to whom it was written. To whom was it written? We have, uh, as he says. To those who are elect exiles. Now we're going to come back to those terms, the elect exiles. But let's go to their place first. Where are they from? Uh, the elect, and we have to talk about the dispersion. The elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, so what you have there, you see some of those names up on here. Um, those are provinces of the Roman Empire. In all, all of them contained in this area, which we refer to as Asia Minor. Okay? Galatia, Bithynia, Pontus. Uh, That's um, the day is Turkey, right? I believe so. Yeah. So if we were to shift back, let's see. I can pull up my map here. Same thing here. You've got the provinces here. If I wanted to, 
I can come up here and somewhere here I could put in uh, modern Yeah, where was that? Modern nations. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Turkey? Yeah. So, um, another thing that we should. I'm going to put back the provinces, a route. But the other. So, in this area, some of the cities in this area, which I don't have. Up here, I could probably put those in. Um, I don't know if it's going to give those to me. Not all of them. Uh, Ephesus, Laodicea, Antioch. Um, oh, you have up here Lystra, Derby. You have all these Iconium um, towns that you read about in Acts. How did these churches, how did there are churches here? How did those churches get started? Well, if you recall, uh, Paul's missionary journeys. You've maybe seen those? He goes to places, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then back again he comes through there on his first missionary journey. And then Paul, on his second missionary journey, goes back through some of those same places, through Asia Minor. That's where he has the vision, and he goes up to Troas, and because he's going to go to Macedonia, and then he comes back to Ephesus before he goes back to Jerusalem. Okay, so these these places have Christian churches in them that were maybe started by Paul in his missionary journeys, which leads us to a question about why is Peter right? Um, which gets us to the circumstances. We'll come to that first. So, um, who's there? Who, who are these part? A lot of the, the conversation about who this letter was written to um, is who is his intended audience. So it's, it's the Christians. Is it primarily, some will say because of the, the, the context and some of the language in the letter, that it seems like he's writing to Jewish Christians, Jews, converts to Christianity. Or is he reading to Christians who were Gentiles, pagans, uh, before becoming Christian. Um, some of the language, but I'll point this out as we get through here, right from the start, we're going to have language that seems like it's, it's using Old Testament language. Um, so it would seem like, like to, to Jewish Christians, maybe, but then he'll also use language that describes them coming out like of paganism, who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Um, that would seem to be like he's talking more to those who were previously Gentiles and, and total pagans. Uh, I think we're going to say it's both. He's just writing to the Christians there. But he is going to use language that it, it, it's, he's going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to use this, this language, like here, sprinkling with his blood, the dispersion. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to that verse. That, that has Old Test, Testament con context, I think essentially what he's, what he's doing is he's, he's putting in front of these Christians to say you are, the, you are the continuation of the Old Testament church. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
here in you. And so they're going to have some of the same language um, for, for these Gentile Christians as for Jewish Christians. Okay. Um, something about the letter, too, that this was a... Uh, sometimes the, the term, have you heard of the term an encyclical? Um, an encyclical, we hear about that from like the Pope, well, a, a papal encyclical. is essentially a letter, but it's meant for wide distribution. That's all it means. Uh, so a papal encyclical is something that the Pope puts out for everyone to read. Um, and, and so it's an encyclical letter in the sense that it was not written to one person and as like a personal letter. He's not writing to individuals. He's writing to congregations, probably by that, oh, the other, when it said by Silvanus, who could have been the one writing it, it could also be the guy who carries the letter, right? You don't just drop it in the mailbox, put a stamp on it, right? You need someone to get this letter to them, and very likely you had someone you send it with someone. And he brings it to one church, they all read it, maybe they make a copy of it, and then the guy goes and he goes on to the next church. And so if he's going to all of these areas, this has to cover a lot. So it's a, it's a circular letter that goes around um, and they read it. And um, it's also um, referred to as a, a general epistle, or sometimes you'll use the phrase that a Catholic epistle. And that doesn't in any way mean anything about the Roman Catholic Church. A Catholic epistle means that it was for whoever read it. And it's for a general area. So the Catholic epistles... Uh, are epistles, letters in the New Testament that aren't written to an individual person. Right? They're written from. So uh, first, second, and third John are not written to John, they're written by John. To whom? It, he, people, churches. Darling? To people who are persecuted, yeah. That is something that we're going to see um, uh, all through this this letter. So, again, going back to our friend uh, the timeline. So we saw those persecutions, and remember when we we, we were studying this this first part, <laughs> you've got all of these these uh, persecutions early on, but none of these. Those are the skull and crossbones. Those black periods of. of but none of those, up until the, the second page, until that second session that we did, those were never empire-wide. Later on, they were. Um, but all of these ones were very local. And this, so we're talking in this time frame down in here. Um, you can see here, uh, Paul's missionary journeys. So we've got to be after that if there's churches there. Yeah? Okay, that's early. Um, here, Nero blames fire of Roman Christians in 64. And then it says Peter and Paul executed in 64. We're going we're gonna to question that. It does have a question mark there. We'll, we'll add to it. Um, there's persecution, but that is happening under Nero in Rome. The, the persecution here in 64, it's like in the fall, fall of 64. That's where Nero takes, uh, goes against the Christians there. That, that doesn't, isn't all the way through the provinces. So these Christians who are in Asia Minor aren't experiencing that persecution. But, and, and also in this letter, Peter doesn't refer to specific persecution. He, they, he, does, he understands that they're going to be suffering. 
what is the suffering that they're experiencing? We don't know exactly. Um, he's, he's going to hint at things, but it is very much, he's very clear that they are, they are facing some suffering for being Christians. So what is that? Um, Didn't they use them as gladiators? In Rome, they did that. Um, and maybe later on, but that, that, that's kind of localized, what they were doing. Here in the provinces, that it, probably it's, it's maybe, I use this phrase in, the, in somewhere, increasing host, hostility towards Christians. So it's not an official form of persecution, like the government's after them. It's just that their neighbors think that they're crazy. It's that they're not favored at all. They're considered losers. They're, it's, it's this, might not be even like violent hostility at all. It's just that people don't like them very much. And they considered them weird. And that sort of thing. Sound familiar? <coughs> and I think that's a wonderful thing with this letter. Um, I read through it in preparation. Just read through the whole the whole letter last night. It doesn't take long. You should do it like every week. Just, just read through it in English. Um, yeah, you can read it in English. But, um, it uh, it speaks to us because of the same sort of thing. It's not necessarily fishing, although we kind of fear. And I think that there's part of this letter where he's preparing them for a time when that that will come. The official the more hard line. How do you prepare for that? We asked that question when we were going through the history. How do we prepare us and our children and the next generation to be able to withstand times when it's not popular to be a Christian? In fact, no one else is. You know? And we, if, you, if you practice the Christian faith, you're going to be different. Yeah? Uh, so... Uh, yeah, no other, uh, this is one thing that, that Steckhardt is, in his introduction, says no other letter of the, of the New Testament, no other epistle touches persecution of Christians like this one does. Um, this, is, this is the one. So, I think that'll be helpful for us. Let's go back to... So that's who is receiving it. Um... This is, this is a quote. This must be from Steckhardt. The hardship of the readers of the letter consisted essentially of slander and blasphemy, as well as all sorts of harassment and oppression that they had to experience in daily contact with their pagan comrades. They just have to live in the world. That's all. But they're a minority. Um, and I would say, I think probably, in truth, Christians always have been. Sometimes we didn't think we were. Um, but, but overall, yeah. Uh, let's talk about these terms. The, um, well, I wonder, the, the circumstances. One of the, where was this letter written from? Where was Peter when he writes the letter? Um, that is also at the end of the letter. There's a greeting. He doesn't send a lot of greetings. He doesn't know these people. He's not like, greet this person and this person. He's, he's never been these places. Um, so he doesn't have a lot of that that Peter or uh, Paul will have, um, but he does a, a few mainly that he sends greetings from where he is. So if you look at five twelve again, end of the book, 
by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Um, you could say that that verse is the kind of the theme of the letter. What's he writing for? He kind of says it when he sums it up at the end. I wrote to you what? Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand in it. To stand in the true grace of God. But then, next verse, verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. So, from where he's writing, he says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Um, it would be weird for him to send greetings from someone who's actually in the actual city of Babylon. Um, there's no indication ever anywhere that Peter ever went towards Babylon. Um, but that probably... The Babylon that he's referring to, so Babylon was a capital city of an empire, of, an, of a, a capa, an empire that was opposed to the faith. Um, so it's probably a nickname for another capital, now the capital of this empire that's in charge now, which is Rome, right? So he's probably in Rome, um, which makes sense also because he says, and also, uh, so does Mark, my son, not his actual son, um, a son in the faith, that Mark was in Rome. He went from Rome to somewhere else where, where Paul sent him. It's likely that he came back. And so it makes sense that Mark would be in Rome and could send those greetings. Um, and then the reference to she who is at Babylon. So she who is at Babylon is not an individual, but probably the church there. That the group of Christians there in Rome. Um, why doesn't Paul write the letter? So Paul had been in prison, you remember? Paul was imprisoned in Rome, finally. But then, but he wasn't there the whole time until he died. We talked about Paul's two imprisonments. He was released, we understand. Um, and during that time, the story goes that he did finally make his way to Spain, as he had intended. So it's possible that Peter is there now. Paul has gone off, he's released, and has gone to Spain. Peter writes this letter, later on Peter's going to come, or Paul's going to come back to Rome, and they probably will both be executed during these persecutions in Rome. Um, probably not at 64. Um, a lot of times when they'll put 64 is because that, that heavy persecution that came in Rome was in 64, but it's possible that they, not everyone was executed then. Um, he writes this letter and he doesn't mention any of that, and I think that's why they think it had to have been written before this, because he would have he would have mentioned maybe some of the persecution in Rome. My suspicion is, is actually later than that. But the news that he doesn't have to tell tell them about the persecution in Rome because they already heard it. It had come through the grapevine down into the provinces. They had heard what had happened, um, and so they're probably scared. They're wondering what what's next, what's going to come for us. Um, if that could happen there, it could happen here. And he's here to, to encourage them to stand firm in the grace of God. Yeah. So, uh, let's see, circumstances. Um, we should talk about these terms. Those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. Uh, NIV says God's elect. This calls them strangers in the world. Scattered. The dispersion is the scattering. So dispersion, that was a technical term. In Greek, it's the diaspora. 
Um, and that is usually referred to in regard to the Jews. The Jews who were, um, you know, in Palestine area, in the Promised Land, they don't get to stay there and they're spread out. Starting with the, the exiles, like the Assyrian exile, there, there, are, there are now Jews living all over the place. And that's usually referred to as the dispersion or the diaspora. They're spread out, right? And so when Paul goes to, those, to these places, he always starts in the synagogue. There's a synagogue there because there's Jews there. But they usually kick him out. <laughs> Maybe some of them believe, but they usually kick him out. And then he goes to the Gentiles. And he forms this congregation of probably some of both, right? Uh, there's a, in the dispersion. But, I, but who he's referring to now are these Christians here in Asia Minor as part of the dispersion. Not necessarily Jews who, instead of being in the promised land, are now spread out. But the Gentiles are part of this dispersion too. It's sort of, sort of a, a play on the words a little bit. He calls them exiles. Uh, they're, they're not in whole. They're not where, they're, where they belong. Where is their home? Wherever they are, wherever Christians are, we're never quite at home. Uh, because where is our home? So he says that as, as Christians in this world, we are, we are part of this. Spread out. We're not all together with our, with our people. We'd like to be. Like to have all, maybe we could take all the Christians from on earth and put them, that, that's not for here, right? Now we're exiles, living in a foreign land that isn't, that isn't ruled by our king, right? We're living like we're living in, in Babylon or like we're living, yeah, we're, we're, we're also spread out. So those were like, yes? When you said that he went to the synagogue as likely and then was kicked out, how can you say concisely what would they have heard that would cause them to kick people out? Um, something about Jesus rising from, rising from the dead, generally. When he gets to Jesus as the savior of the world, that's usually the point, that they are not, not interested anymore. If they're talking about, you know, um, how to keep the law or something like that. If he was talking about that, they'd be fine with it. Yeah. But it's the preaching of Jesus. Yeah. Um, and that's all, you know, in, in the book of Acts, you read those, like, some of those, what he's actually saying, but in general. Yeah. Um, elect. Elect means chosen. So they're chosen ones. So they're not, they're not exiles as part of punishment. These are elect exiles. These are chosen out of the world, chosen by him. So then this is, um, he's going to use this, this term a number of times um, in, in a reference to the, the teaching of election. Who does the choosing? God does the choosing. Um, and the Bible teaches of, of an, an election that a, of a God choosing from the beginning of the world. We're going to have hints of that even here too. Um, Why are they who they are? Why are they Christians? Because God has chosen them by grace, by not, not their own works, not their own merits, but by his choosing. Um, you're going to have that hinted at in the word form knowledge here coming up. That in advance, God picks, God chooses. That's not going to say anything about those who aren't chosen. It's a comfort to those, especially those who are suffering. The reason that you are where you are is because God chose you. Um, 
to, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in, in, in Asia Minor. Next, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of, to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, when we were going through church history, somewhere, and I, I forget if it was Tertullian or who was the first used the term the Trinity, right? That comes later before they actually coined the term. Uh, for, and, and, and in those years, they're wrestling out, what does it mean to, for God to have three persons, but one, one God? What are the persons, they got the persons of the Trinity and have the relationship to the, to the Godhead, and then they have the person of Jesus Christ and the nature, two natures. All that wrestling, that theological wrestling. You can see, though, that they, didn't, they weren't making up the teaching of the Trinity. <laughs> and you don't see it, um, you don't see it like spelled out in the New Testament as if like, oh, well, here's the doctrine of the Trinity as clearly as say the Athanasian Creed, right? That's not what is going to be in, if we come back. Um, but you, ha- you see it there, don't you? There's the, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit right there. Um, and each of them working. What is, how is that described? So what is the Father described as doing? According to the foreknowledge of God, of knowing in advance. That's, that's part of that choosing of God. He, he chooses, and then how about, well, let's, let's jump to, the, to Jesus. It doesn't specifically say, but um, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood... Well, of course, his blood is going to indicate something that Jesus has done, right, for us. Um, and we need to come into contact with what Jesus has done um, in the, s- the sanctification of the Spirit. And when that fits, um, we, we teach in the, the third article of the sanctification, uh, which means, what does sanctification means? mean? Sanctification, sanctus, sanctus, sanctus means... We sing it every Sunday. Sanctus. What do we sing? Holy, right? Holy, holy, holy. So sanctification is holification. <laughs> um, it's making holy. And how does? But what does that mean? What does making holy mean? Um, we always jump right to perfect with holy, and that doesn't mean. But what is the the bare meaning of of sanctus of holy? It means to be set apart. That God is holy means God is set apart. Um, the angels seeing the throne of God, Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy on God on his throne. Right? God is is set apart. That's why Isaiah can't look. God is holy. But if if we are sanctified, if we are holified, made holy, we are being set apart. Set apart for what? Well, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So the Spirit does the work of bringing us into contact with Jesus. That's what Jesus says when he promises the Holy Spirit. He will remind you of all things I have said to you. How does the Holy Spirit set us apart? By bringing, up, bringing Jesus to us. And how does that happen? For, uh, well, it's through, how does the Holy Spirit work? Through the Word. And so that's why he says, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, obedience in English always sounds like a dog listening to its master. Well, although that's, that's, there's some tr- bit of truth in it. What is, what is it? An integral part of obedience. A necessary, absolutely necessary part of obedience. 
hearing. Um, this is why uh, the Greek term that, that we use for obedience, that Peter uses, hippokoe, akuo, means to hear. So the, the Greek word to, to obey means to hear under. It's to listen. Right? So whenever you see the obedience, think hearing and doing. Hearing first. Um, so how does, how does someone come to be set apart by the Spirit? By hearing Jesus, sprinkling with his blood. So Jesus dies, but his blood, that's, that's an Old Testament language picture in the, in the Old Testament, uh, the temple and the tabernacle. You'd have the sacrifice and the, blood, the animal would be killed, the blood is poured out, and then they'd, they'd dip uh, like a hyssop branch, branch of a plant, and then they'd just sprinkle it on the people. Going to church was messy in those days. Um, <laughs> you'd get the, what's, what's the picture uh, that, that God is teaching? When you kill the animal in this, say, the sin offering, and then you sprinkle the blood on the people who bring it. What's, what's being communicated? Jesus' death. And, and it, it comes to you. So the, the animal dies. You don't die. Getting the, blood of the, getting the blood of the animal on you is a way of saying that what, the, what happened to the animal counts for you. You know, it's similar to in the Passover. What do they do? They kill the lamb. And what are they, what are they told to do in that case? They don't sprinkle it on themselves. Or they, they paint it on the door frame of their houses. So the angel of death sees it and passes over. They see the death and say, oh, I can't go there. The death's already happened there. A sacrificial death. Already happened there. Hands off. No killing anyone in that house. And for those who have been sprinkled with his blood, <coughs> the angel of death has nothing to, can't, can't touch you. Uh, chosen by God the Father from all eternity. And in time, Jesus comes, dies, and he, he bestows his blood upon us through his spirit. That sets us apart. That sanctifies us. So we're not made holy by getting better. We're made holy by the blood of Jesus, set apart by the blood of Jesus. Does that change us? Yes, it sure does. Yeah. So this is, just, this is just him describing these people. <laughs> um, to those who are elect exiles... Uh, and and they're, they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Pastor, why is the word dispersion capitalized? Trying to put emphasis on the people that are scattered? Yeah, so remember I mentioned that was sort of a technical term for the, the, the dispersion? Um, I think that's probably why they do that. Uh, because it was used as a, as a, like, not just any dispersion, but the, the one. That's an editorial decision. You notice that. Um, you know, NIV doesn't do that. They just call it scatter. Um, but I think that it's helpful for us to know that that's a technical term that was used as a technical term. Although even here, Paul's not, or Peter, he doesn't. I don't think he's referring to it as the Jewish dispersion of the Jews from the Holy Land, but of Christians. Although that's that is part of it. That's there were Jews there too, but that's that's the reason for the capital literature. So. <laughs> This is his address, dear, dear John, but it's, it's a little bit longer, so he's explaining and describing them. Um, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So this then is uh, the, the greeting. So a letter would always have these parts. You'd have the, the, uh, the author first, then the recipient. The recipient, and then a greeting. 
Um, this is where the apostolic greeting, so what you'll, you'll hear at the beginning of, of the sermon, grace and peace to you from God the Father, that's taken from Paul. It's, it, the, the pastor's imitating the apostle. Jesus sent that guy, and now he sent another guy, and we've got the same greeting. And they're all very similar. They sort of take on you know, typical, um, typical uh, Greek letters from the time. They would just be greetings, you could just say. Um, but it has more of a spin when you say, may grace and peace. Um, peace is also, so grace, um, the, the Greek word is charis, which means gift, it's, it's, it's grace. Um, but it's also very similar to the word kairet, uh, which was like, it's just like greetings in Greek. And then peace, Irene, um, would have been familiar to Jewish readers. Uh, in, in, if he were writing in Hebrew, he would write shalom, peace. So for him to say grace and peace, it kind of hits both of those. Hits both the, the Greek world and the, the Jewish world, grace and peace. Um, be multiplied to you. It's not just grace and peace to you, but that it may be multiplied to you. See, I thought said we're going to go slow. So, and, and, and <laughs> I can't even start because you, you see there on the sheet how it says uh, the next uh, verses three to nine, that's one sentence. Um, in English, we break it up. We have to break it up because we, we can't handle sentences that long. We don't have enough relative pronouns to tie it all together. And so we have to break it up and have a multiple. But in Greek, it's one central thing. I'm not even going to start that because it, it, it's all connected. Um, but uh, <laughs> this gets even better uh, in this next section. What I want to do now, though, is uh, the opening. I don't need that much time. Maybe questions on this before we... I want to talk about the opening hymn this morning. It's a new hymn. Not a new hymn, but it's... Not in our red hymnal. Um, any thoughts or questions on this? Pastor, how, when you go through the Bible, um, you know, now we'll have the <coughs> to the living hope. Do you always find that beneficial, or do you sometimes the, the, just go reading the headings? Yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Um, sometimes I appreciate that, but break them up. I actually, in my, my Bible that I use most frequently, um, they actually took them, they have them in the sidebar of this, which I thought combining it is a really good idea um, because they're not in that distinction. Those aren't part of the text. Those are editorial, a, a summary for us. They're helpful, can be helpful. Um, but one thing that I realized is what those do visually in a Bible is it helps me like identify where things are on the page. So now on my Bible, all the lines are all in the same places and it's just a block of text. And it's sometimes hard for it doesn't break it up enough and my eye breaks every once in a while. So I don't, I'm finding that it's harder to remember where stuff is in this Bible than other Bibles that have those in the text. That's a weird kind of thing. Um, but that was my, oh, that sounds like a good idea because they're, those are, Editorial and helpful, potentially helpful, um, sometimes. And usually, I mean, they're pretty easy. So, was he talking to a pastor like you, or was he talking to the congregation? To the congregation. Um, he's going to have section uh, in chapter five. 
he's going to say, as a fellow elder, I appeal to the elders among you. So he's going to talk to the pastors too. Um, but he's overall, and he's going to have specific words to specific people. So he's going to talk about to women in here. And he's going to talk to men, to husbands and to wives. He's going to talk to servants um, in, among the congregation. But overall, the book is, the letter is to the whole congregation. He's going to have a couple points where he's going to call some people out. Um, but overall to, to the whole church. Yeah. Which probably though, you know, it's going to become probably the pastor of the, of the church is going to be reading it. Right. Yeah. They're not all going to have copies like we get copies of the Bible. They've got one and they get together and they read it. Yeah. So if you grabbed a copy of the, the sheet, the uh, hymn sheet, I put one out there. It's also printed in the order. But this one does have parts, so if anyone is like, so in, in the order, it's just a melody line. So if that's of interest to you, there's your golden ticket right there. Uh, the Son of God goes forth to war. So it's not in our, the Red 93 hymnal, but it was in TLH before that. Um, it's in every other hymnal, just about. Um, the Son of God. It's about martyrs. So All Saints Day is to, well, it's November 1st. We're celebrating it today, All Saints Day. Originally was all martyrs. It was mainly a, a feast to, to commemorate the, those who had died for the faith, um, as well as other confessors. And then over time, over the centuries, I mean, this was started very early on in the first couple hundred years of, of the church. So this commemoration. Uh, but then eventually it just became known as All Saints Day. Uh, but this hymn it is specific about the martyrs. Um, in stanza two, it's going to, it was written for the Feast of St. Stephen. On the Feast of Stephen, that Christmas hymn. On the Feast of Stephen, this is the day after Christmas, um, December 26th. It was written for that. That's stanza two. So when, it's, when you're singing stanza two, that's right, writing about the martyr whose eagle eye could pierce beyond the grave, who saw his master in the sky and called on him to save. When Stephen is being martyred, he sees the heavens open. Um, uh, and then stanza three is like the twelve, or it's about the twelve, the glor glorious band, the chosen few, on whom the spirit came. I love that. They met the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane. Talk about them getting eaten by lions in the Colosseum. Uh, they bowed their neck, the death to feel. Who follows in their train? Um, anyway, uh, just a couple of, of, of other references to this hymn outside of, outside of church. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, poet, author, uh, The Jungle Book, um, the guy who wrote the original book to that, wrote a book called The Man Who Would Be King um, in uh, 1888. It's about guys becoming king in Afghanistan, but it's old. Um, was made into a, a movie in 1975 with uh, Sean Connery, uh, Richard Kane, Michael Caine, um, and uh, I forget the name, the, the other guy. Anyway, in, in the movie, uh, the, um, Sean Connery's character sings this hymn, although with a different tune, several times in the movie. I haven't seen the whole movie. I just saw clips of it. But he sings this hymn, and one of them is as he's about to die. He's on this like rope bridge, and they're going to cut the, the ropes. <laughs> And they do. They cut the ropes and he falls as he's singing this, this hymn. Um, the other reference I found was in this uh, little book called The Story of a Short Life, written in 1900, published in 1900. Um, 
uh, it's, it's for, for kids, uh, like 10 to 12. It's a school book. And uh, in, the, in the end of the book, this little boy hears the soldier singing this hymn, and he loves the hymn so much, and he loves the soldiers. And he had seen the soldiers playing tug of war, and then he heard the soldiers singing this hymn in church, and he said it's kind of like the tug of war hymn because they were kind of like, they weren't at the same speed as the organist wanted to play, and so it felt like they were playing tug of war while they were, while they were singing, and that's what he called it. But an amazing thing about this hymn, uh, or the, about this, uh, the book, we were reading it last night, uh, I found it online, Google Books or something like that, uh, reading this book from 1900, meant for 10 to 12 years, really hard words in it. The language in this thing, you would never see, not, it's, it's, <laughs> challenging like the, what they what they could expect 10 to 12 year olds to read in 1900 is, is stunning um, I, I would not have I would not have expected that um, but I, I've got a recording of it I think it'll play and we'll sing it for a little bit is there a closing the song Oh. Mm-hmm.